தமிழே நீ சொல்லி நீ சொல்லி முடிச்ச பிறகு நான் இங்கிலீஷ்ல டிரான்ஸ்லேட் பண்ணுவேன் நீ சொல்லி முடியும் நர்ஸா வேலை செய்யும் போது அது கரெக்ட் டைம் நம்ம அங்க இருக்கணும் ஒரு கேஸ் இருந்ததுன்னா அதை முடிச்சுட்டு தான் நம்ம வீட்டுக்கு வரணும் நம்ம கரெக்டா ஏழு மணினா ஏழு மணிக்கு நம்மளால வர முடியாது ஒரு கேஸ் இருக்கு அதோட ஒரு வேலை முடியணும் அப்படின்னா ஒரு டெலிவரி அப்படின்னா அது கூட அட்ஜஸ்ட் பண்ணும் போது அந்த டெலிவரி ஆகி அந்த குழந்தைக்கு எல்லா வேலையும் பண்ணி சில சமயம் செவன் தேர்ட்டி எயிட் அப்படி கூட ஆயிடும் நைட் டைம் நம்ம குழந்தைய விட்டுட்டு வேலைக்கு போயிருப்பேன் அந்த ஜன்னல்ல வந்து கயிறு கட்டி இவங்களை கட்டி போட்டுட்டெல்லாம் நான் போயிருக்கேன் வேலைக்கு ரொம்ப கஷ்டப்பட்டு வந்தாலும் ஒரு சந்தோஷம் இருந்தது நாளைக்கு பெரிய இது ஆகும்போது இவங்களை நல்ல நிலைமையில கொண்டு வரலாம் ரெண்டு பேரும் சம்பாதிக்கும் போது கொஞ்சம் நல்ல இதுதான் அதுவும் ஹஸ்பண்ட் நமக்கு நல்ல இதுவா இருந்தா நல்லவே கொண்டு வரலாம் ஜலஜா ராமன் டைம்ஸ் As a single parent of two boys, she would have to leave her young children alone at home for long periods of time, and to keep them safe, she sometimes had to tie them to the window. The person you hear at the beginning encouraging her to tell us her story is her younger son and translator, Srini Swaminathan. In the clip you just heard, she speaks about how she had high aspirations for her boys, how she wanted to raise her children well, for them to make something big of themselves. as well as if they had a father in their lives till 1987 when my my father passed away my mom used to work as a nurse in a rural hospital and uh, she doesn't have any qualification though she's a grade 11 12 dropout uh, from school but uh, she always had this grit and she was a midwife so she she would deliver uh, babies and uh, one thing that's always stuck with me is she would always wish for a baby boy because uh, if the baby is a boy she would get an extra tip you know that always struck me when i was growing up she would hide that money inside rice or dal or sometimes even she would dig up a small hole in the garden and hide the money there because uh, my dad would not only use his salary to drink but also he will take away the money my mom earns Welcome to In the Field, a show about India and development, hosted by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. In the Field is supported by Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies, and in this episode, we're talking about women and work. It's about what happens to aspirations, how women navigate life and opportunity, and how very few get to choose. And it's about what we're missing out in our attempts to make all women triumph. children in eastern up and we were saying you know like share your dreams uh you know if you talk to them first they'll say that we you know uh, i mean and we were just saying okay share so this i'll share it so i asked a question to these kids and i said okay have you ever shared your dreams before no they have never shared their dreams and when we look at each other here around the table when you were growing up you would have like five dreams that like you want to be from anything from an astronaut to a librarian to you know becoming a fashion model it could go through all of those changes but you did have an aspiration my question back to you is do these people even have an aspiration if they do have they ever articulated it 
do they feel confident enough to have that space available to them and these kids really like i mean i was just teared up when i said my god you know they nobody had ever asked them they had never articulated these dreams before and they had dreams like you know i'll be a teacher because that's the best they could get or i'll do something good for my village or i want to run and play because they they've never been asked these questions because you already think what what they can do at best is may, maybe make papad or whatever else or maybe become a nurse at best or a asha yeah if that's somewhere even but the girls the, that age group the kids are not thinking like that so i think it's not about it's just about having an aspiration which is somewhat not there and i think it's even i feel sometimes oh my god we have a privilege to dream that's the alarming point Sonali Khan speaking here has worked on gender issues for over 20 years and was awarded the Nari Shakti Puraskar in 2016 for her leadership in women's rights. What she's pointing out is the connection between aspirations and work and how much work there is to actually get young girls and women to the point where they are free to imagine what they can do and might want to do. Often in development programs, women's programs, women are instruments in interventions. even where women are the targets or subjects of empowerment or education or employment but how often are these programs transformative because we all know hopes dreams aspirations and ambitions are mediated arenas especially for girls and women a recent research paper found that when choosing a college to study in delhi many young women opt for colleges based on the safety of their commute Researcher Girija Borkar spoke to over 4000 students and layered commute routes with the help of Google Maps over crowdsourced information on the safety of various travel routes and she found that women often choose an inferior college in terms of quality than a better one if the journey to the inferior college was safer than the route to the better college and she also found that women are willing to spend nearly 19000 rupees a year more than men for a safer travel route The question of safety is a strong decision factor in the way women make choices. This is not new information. We've all experienced this. Schools chosen for their safety and proximity to home, colleges that are a direct bus route away, being allowed to work evening and night shifts only if there's a pickup and drop ensured by the workplace, harassment and it could vary from a tap on the shoulder, a wink or a whistle, to people looking down at you on a train or pressing up against you in a bus to even more violent forms of harassment and assault are so commonplace that we've internalized our knowledge of it to such a degree that it is the constant in all our equations and it's not just in the college going girls equation add to that the familial and social angles that limit her choices quite invisibly the inhibitors to women participating wholly and productively in economic life begin here very early on women begin to lower their standards begin to adjust their ambitions and negotiate where they could go in life not based on their capabilities or their dreams one of the big institutions that determine how women participate in public life is marriage and it's kind of essential to look at how married women make choices especially around work Why is it important? It's because research about women and work often cite marriage and everything that ensues as a point when female participation in the labor force changes. How do economics, culture, tradition and love together clash and determine how women negotiate choices and make decisions? While thinking about these questions, we became interested in the work of Shalini Grover 
an anthropologist who has looked extensively at how marriage fits into the larger conversation about gender and development issues. And that's exactly why uh, my ethnography uh, was not just all about, you know, uh, what love means and, uh, you know, marital stability, but it was also about, uh, you know, labor relations. It was about what happens when women go to work in marriage. In Shalini's deep ethnographic investigations of marriage in Abasti, a lower-income area in Delhi, she looks at all types of marriages, love marriages, arranged marriages, second marriages. And she looks at the roles of men and women within each of these, such as the expectations of the breadwinner, of wives and mothers, and what happens when things break down, and what holds unions together. She often uses the phrase margins of modernity to describe these communities. We asked her what she meant by that. Uh, I think that the urban poor are very connected to, they connect, they certainly I feel connected to globalization and social change. So I feel that though, you know, they are on the margins of modernity because of this. So they're not isolated from, you know, the big, uh, sort of mall that's come up near their outside their uh, neighborhood five minutes away. They're not isolated from middle class neighborhoods. They are negotiating and living in, uh, of course, in very different ways from the middle classes. But they're not. They are also observing those changes and they're also aspiring. Right here, Shalini finds that despite the winds of change. Traditional unions like arranged marriages are still preferred because they offer women the greatest level of security. The larger family is always there to support in times of crisis. The male breadwinner model is also still the standard, and customs work to preserve the status quo, not encouraging women to work, especially when families have a bit of money. Yeah, that's what prestige meant to the family, that you withdraw women's labor. Right. And, and so... It's very interesting for me to see that there is this young cohort of women who are making those independent choices of going to cinema halls and working, movie halls, uh, sorry, cinema halls, um, the mall, the airport, uh, various places. But uh, I don't know to what extent they can retain this kind of trajectory until how long. But with the changes she observes, the outside coming in, and influencing the way women see work and themselves, she wonders how marriage itself will change. And it's, it's a, it's, it is a question mark for me that that girl who's coming back, who's probably, you know, an assistant with somewhere in the mall, who's looking just like one of us and, you know, with, you know, with really smartly dressed up makeup. And, you know, how is she going to negotiate her independence and her marriage in the years to come, you know? given the overwhelming uh, sort of social norms in that neighborhood, which are very much tilted towards uh, the arranged marriage. In Shalini's communities, there was a very strong mahila, or women-led panchayat, that would arbitrate conflicts affecting women within the community. Unlike courts of law, these panchayats dealt with issues such as infidelity, maintenance and economic support, domestic violence, drunk husbands, the right to work, and so on which were resolved using conversations, negotiation, and social pressure. The Mahila Panchayats were, you know, uh, 
you know, very immediate contact in their lives. Literally walk two minutes to the Mahila Panchayat if you're, you know, if there's a serious sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, a domestic violence case or, you know, a girl, a baby's being denied milk or the husband has taken away some, you know, th things that happen in the Bastis that immediately, the immediate contact there is the Mahila Panchayat. Um, but on the other hand, I think they're also quite fed up and quite suspicious of um, of so many NGOs uh, sort of walking in and out of their lives and, and, you know, doing this program with them and that program. There seems to be an inertia there as well. It's not that NGOs haven't done good work for them and with them. But it's almost as if, you know, there was very much that suspicion as well as to, oh, well, who are these people? At the end of the day, what do they want from us? She points to the difference in the ways in which local women saw an institution run by their sisters and their behens versus the types of NGOs that may have come in, run by upper-middle-class women, bringing their views on empowerment. She observes the tension between these two perspectives on what's good for women, Security within tradition versus an untethered empowerment. Sonali Khan weighs in on this. So I think what happens there is this all of this social norms, customary law, uh, all of our traditions come to play when you're talking about how you want to see transformation happen. We have to start from where people are. So I think this is one of the things I'd like to say that we sometimes are so moralistic that you know we we are on this hot moral high horse but when you enter a community i think you have to understand where the community is and then you move them up the ladder i mean many of us if we also think back to the kind of families we came from or you know think back to the kinds of uh, you know life journey that we have been able to make to be able to be who we are to be able to be out there you know make assertive claims make, make changes in our life challenge patriarchy challenge systems of authority that really not only degraded us but degraded other women and other vulnerable marginalized folks it's been a journey and i think that way when there's trust built why would anyone trust me to go into a, you know, like who, who am I? They say, Chaap to shahir se aayo, aap chale jaoge, abhi to yaan rehna padega. That's, that's the logic, but that's true. So how do you then walk with them through this process of change? Okay, well, let me just respond to some of the yeah. things that you guys have been sure. saying. I think there's a dialectic effect between law and society. So on the one hand, law is sort of shaped by what people want and by um, and that's that's in its one in one place, but it's also very important to remember that our democracies, uh, you know, the world over, the sort of credible democracies are constitutional democracies, right? So even if a large proportion of people think that, you know, women should be burnt at the stake as witches or believe and pass a law on that or believe that women should be burnt on the funeral pyre, you know, as sati. Um, if even one woman's rights are being violated, then this is, this in India would be against her right to life. Karuna Nandi is a fearless advocate for women. While most of her work is in the courts, 
She's passionate about the relationship between law and society, and so engages often with the media to encourage these conversations. It is incumbent on any government to take affirmative steps, because why do governments even exist? Governments exist in order to guarantee equality of opportunity, equality of access, equality of power, and freedoms. And in India, we have a lot of laws that are intended to do just that. But we still have a heavily patriarchal system that we're trying to fix through the law. For instance, the Women's Reservation Bill, which proposed 33% reservation for women in the lower house of parliament, has been floating around for years. It's not for lack of trying. There was even this amazing picture of Sonia Gandhi, Sushma Swaraj and Brinda Karat holding hands in front of the Sansad, saying that they will push this bill through. All these years and decades later, nothing has happened because of the persistence of patriarchy. Yet, at the same time, in India we celebrate and felicitate women in high positions. Think of the few women CEOs we have, or women in political leadership, or the women scientists at the heart of India's space program. We make much of them, but are they symbolic of change, or are they symbolic of pure ambition and the grit to fight against all odds? And why is that? It's because being a woman is penalized on your way up to the top, hugely. And so these women who break the glass ceilings, right, do so having endured and having navigated a lot of patriarchy. Now, in terms of the workplace, there are... um, It is a matter of deep concern, deep concern that people are not talking about enough, that the female workforce participation rate is going down, you know, and it is because of patriarchies that are holding these women back. Every day I was preoccupied with my commute. I had to reach the stop at the correct time. I had to take a bus for an hour. I was always running. My mind was always running. I was always worried about needing to catch the train. Walk for 10 to 15 minutes. I had night shifts and I would work from 7 to 2. And I wouldn't even notice if it was raining or if the sun was out. I just had to go to work every day. When I had night duty, I would work from 6 in the evening to 8 in the morning. I would get home really tired, but I had to get these children ready for school. I had to cook and then I had to wash clothes. I did it without any help. No relatives helped either. I managed because I had a manodharyam, a strength of mind. Jalaja's life is a glimpse into a single working mother's life in India and the world over. One of the most talked about economic trends that everyone seems to be concerned about right now is that of the falling female labour force participation, particularly in rural India. This is important stuff because India is an outlier. This disturbing trend goes against what is conventionally assumed to happen as a country grows and as its population becomes more educated. Farzana Afridi is an associate professor at the Indian Statistical Institute and she's done a lot of work on gender and labour. She explains to us what all of this means. 
in the urban areas there's stagnation in labor force participation so it's neither increasing nor is it decreasing and it has been mostly stagnant at around 20% over the last 30 to 40 years uh and this is in spite of the fact that women in urban areas are moving from let's say primary and secondary level of education to college education also higher secondary and college education in the rural areas what is happening is that there has been a decline according to the national sample survey so from about 50% to about 40 or 35% the decline over the last 30 years so since a majority of the women reside in the rural areas if you looked at the national picture it would suggest that there is an overall decline in women's labor force participation it's very important for us to figure out what's holding women back from becoming economically active because it's one of the most important ways through which empowerment happens Farzana's research shows that rural married women between the ages of 25 and 60 are the ones showing the decline. Other categories of women, those technically seen to be more impoverished, such as unmarried or divorced or widowed women, are not affected by this trend. So what's the source of this decline? Farzana has two points. One, that women seem to weigh the returns from home production with the kinds of jobs they are likely to get. and many choose to invest their time at home in developing their children's human capital home production includes work like cooking cleaning taking care of your kids and their education and essentially health and so on and so forth right so a lot of activities which are related to work within the household which is essentially unpaid work and what that potentially points to is the possibility that uh as you get more educated as a woman when you're more educated you're more productive at doing these activities so you know a, a woman who has let's say a college level of education for example would be more productive at helping her children uh with school work and so on and so forth than a woman who has let's say primary level of education but the returns essentially that you are seeing is also returns that you are getting in the future from investing in your kids and then you compare those returns with the market return so what if i didn't stay at home and i decided to go out and work what are the kind of wages that i could get her second point is that many women also assess their ability to grow in their jobs or simply to get good jobs the vast majority of women she studied have at the most secondary education and the jobs they expect to get outside of agriculture are in manufacturing but there are very few of them and unfortunately manufacturing jobs are extremely uh sparse and limited as we all know in india in terms of the structural transformation we've been seeing in our economy we've sort of jumped from agriculture to services and almost completely bypassed the manufacturing stage so access to these kinds of jobs which are in the manufacturing sector are pretty limited and so the demand side that is the demand for women's work might be low and as a result i am more educated if i am more educated now my reservation wage has gone up i expect a higher wage i expect a particular kind of job i'm not in agricultural sector anymore and and that kind of return i'm not getting and i compare the return that i could get in the labor market which seems to be low and the returns that i would get in home production and if that is high so it's about relative returns the other explanation is that cultural norms are holding women back 
Farzana dismisses this because if women are getting more educated, it would be fair to assume they're getting more empowered, at least theoretically. So it seems unpalatable to think that men are holding women back from working. Uh, and if you want to explain the trend over time, then it would mean that over time norms against women working are becoming worse which seems uh, unlikely in an Indian context. Norms are probably not becoming more stringent against women working. Norms are probably where they always were. So if that was the case, then you should have seen a stagnation and not a decline that we observe, at least in the rural areas. So our explanation was something, just pointing out to something that people haven't really thought about in the sense that why is it that women are getting more educated and yet you do not see them becoming more active economically. We're about three quarters through season one and we'd really like to be back for a second season, but we need your help. In the field is crowdfunding to support season two. So if you like our show, please do go to our website, www.inthefieldindia.org and donate. Every bit, every rupee counts and it will help us bring you stories of India's development. Please also take the time out to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to us. It really helps spread the word. Let's get back to Jalaja. First 75 rupees salary in 1975. I used to earn 75 rupees a month in 1975. It was a real feeling of satisfaction. And then I earned 100 rupees. It was really essential. I needed it to raise these children. But I couldn't be there with them and enjoy their childhood and look after them. And then when I moved to BSNL, my salary was higher, which made me happy. I always worked with dedication. So whenever I got more work, I didn't think of it as hard work because I needed the money. I would happily do it. I always worked cheerfully from day one to the day I retired. My earliest memory, I remember, um, even when I was uh, six or seven years old, uh, you know, my brother and I always saw mom go to work and come back. And the, mo- the from the moment she would come back home, she would start, you know, uh, cooking food and like washing everything. And because she had to send us to school, right? To, and we, she had to send the lunchbox with us. And... Uh, when uh, she was leaving for work, like night shift, she would say, when I come back home, make sure the milk is boiled, the rice and the dal are already in the cooker and no vessels in the kitchen sink. It's not just about doing these things, but it's about the mindset, right? That it's a sh- running a home is a shared responsibility. The one thing about women that everyone agrees upon is that they are good workers. We are good workers. They're more conscientious, more reliable, and more efficient, and employers know this. And so shouldn't women be supported in their workplaces and by their employers to do even better? 
We need more consistent research, data, and advocacy to make what we know anecdotally more visible, to demand the acknowledgement of the real economic impacts of hardworking women, who are assets to the workforce, and to find ways to support them even more. There's a lot of data that reinforces female productivity, especially from industries where women are predominantly desired, such as garment manufacturing. And it's why groups of women, or SHGs, are so desired in development programs. Besides this instrumentalist view, very simply, women also need the work. And so schemes like Enrega do help bring millions of women with very low education and almost no skills into the economic sphere. In a follow-up email, we asked Farzana about the most glaring evidence gaps or data insight that could serve as evidence for policies that support working women. She replied, I think that the kind of data that would be most useful is those that help in understanding how women's preferences and behaviours evolve over their life cycle. So essentially, if we had snapshots of the same woman's behavior over different points in her life, such as which subjects she chose in school, what age she got married, and when she had children, then we could identify exactly what the biggest constraint is that girls or women face in economic empowerment and why. For example, is it because they have low-quality schooling? Or is it because they have no skills in adolescence? Or is it because childcare was lacking? In the West, there exist data sets that have followed women for many years and have helped understand many of these changes. Um, she often says that small things in a working woman's life sometimes translate to uh, extraordinary or like disproportionately high level of stress. Um, you know, especially uh, a woman with two children who have to go to school every day and so on. And especially for a woman who had absolutely no help or support from relatives and friends. It's uh, extreme stress. So she says small things could have probably helped in a big way. It's the small things, Jalaja says. And it's these small things that point to the kind of evidence we need to figure out how women ought to be supported. If someone was there to help her with her kids, or if she had a scooter or a motorbike, or if she learned to drive, which would have allowed her to come home directly without depending on buses and trains, and that she could have done without all the harassment she faced at the hands of others on public transport. These are the things, she says, that would have made a world of difference. Karuna sums it up pretty well. Women should be allowed to focus on their work, and we have to make that possible. You have to, like, you know, you want to remove these barriers. You want to not have half a woman's brain or like a quarter of a woman's brain occupied by dealing with sexual harassment. You know, or dealing with a result, we never see if teasing anymore because that minimizes the issue. Um, teasing is the colloquial of what they used to say before. The, the term now is sexual harassment. Um, so, you don't want people's brains occupied by this sort of nonsense, right? You want the best talent at the table and you want the best talent leading these organizations. The development project sees women in a certain way. We're trying to create change tangibly by collecting data and representing women's lives and lived experiences in ways that are convenient to documenting and quantifying and implementing change. But even in our own work, we felt this frustration, the inability to capture reality, complexity, especially within project frameworks. Because the word development inherently is a loaded word. 
but when you look at the development work it's largely status quoist yeah it's just out there so if you look at education you look at nutrition many of the women that are working there i mean when we say liberal is it really liberal yeah is it really you know we talk about development in the sense of a country economic development so if you're earning uh, 100 rupees a day you'll start earning 200 if your you know uh, body weight weight mass is like x it will become y so it still works within a very different framework that doesn't answer necessarily the gender questions you will say okay let's employ women because they have to reach women so they're seen instrumental in getting say for example child and uh, maternal mortality down but that doesn't mean that okay you given them work to do but doesn't mean the structure the system and the attitude of people have changed but there are some who see value in capturing stories of how women change and evolve through their lives down to the last detail and its transformative potential dr cs lakshmi the writer and scholar started sparrow sound and picture archives for research on women way back in 1988 Sparrow has grown to be a wonderful archive and collection recording the oral histories of Indian women. We visited Sparrow a few weeks ago. It's located in the northernmost suburb of Mumbai and takes up a few floors of a very nondescript residential building. And when we were there a gaggle of college students were on a tour. I'll first, uh, uh, tell you uh, uh, how uh, archiving that I do. it is not seen as part of development because uh, development is about quantification it's not about qualitative work so in 88 when i wanted to set up this uh, organization along with two other friends who were uh, academics uh, the problem basically was uh, why should we do this in what we should be doing is going into the field and working and uh, do rural development and uh, that kind of a thing and the rural development and empowerment of women uh, was basically understood in uh, quantifiable terms but i wanted to do archiving because i feel that archiving is very much about development because if we don't archive an entire history may be forgotten and entire history of women have lived how women have thought how women have worked it lot disappear every woman's life is important our modes of collecting evidence are rarely complete the devil is in the details and it's only in the telling and retelling of a person's story that we can understand where agency lies one of the most valuable aspects of the me too movement is the importance of sharing the story all our stories over and over again we clearly don't have enough evidence but it's important to remember that many have been doing this hard work for a long time like uh, for example uh, some Russian family here they approached us and they said that uh, we have an old grandmother in the house and during second world war she crossed the, uh, she walked from Burma and crossed the border and came to India and she would like to record it will you come so of course we went and we recorded that she was an old lady she spoke in Marathi about how she came then A lot of my feminist friends asked me, so what is so feminist about walking from Burma and crossing the border and coming to India? 
So I said that crossing the border, walking all the way from Burma and coming to India may not be feminist. But wanting to record it is feminist. But what were Chala Jha's aspirations? Did she have any? The, the thing is, mom is very shy. So, uh, you know, and also I I have to like kind of keep, keep nudging her to come out with some stories because she's like, she always thinks uh, these things are all not so important. Oh, why would anyone want to know about these unimportant things? But she often immediately sidetracks to me and my brother. <laughs> so, though sometimes she slips out and says, yeah, I wanted to study and so on. So let me ask her, why don't you go to Marubini Chinnavais and go to Marubini Chinnavais? அந்த வாழ்க்கை மறுபடியும் Jalaja Raman says that she would have wanted to be everything her son is today. In her own words she says, "I wanted to be like you, independent. Like you, I wanted to study and like you, I wanted to help those with less than us. I wanted to do it independently without any help. And that is what I would have desired." Today Shrini works in development. He was a Teach for India fellow who founded the Chennai chapter. before working with Barefoot College and the Akanksha Foundation he got a government scholarship to study at Bitpalani which he says changed his life he is quite literally standing on the shoulders of his mother's untiring dedication to giving her sons a better life And that's the end of the show. Before we roll the credits, don't forget our fundraising campaign is on. So please do go to our website www.inthefieldindia.org and donate. Every bit, every rupee counts and it will help us bring you the stories of India's development. Please also do take the time out to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to us. It really helps spread the word. And for this show, thanks to Karuna Nandi, Farzana Afridi, Shalini Grover, CS Lakshmi and the team at Sparrow, Jalaja Raman and Srini Swaminathan. In the Field is produced and hosted by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. Priya Desai is our associate producer. Our music was made by Hollis Coates. Third Eye Recording Studio does the sound and Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies helps us do all of the above. So until next time, subscribe for updates on our website and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We're at In the Field India. <laughs>